Drabblecast, episode 256. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So we'll start things off this week with some cool news. Just got back from DragonCon in Atlanta, where the Drabblecast took home the Parsec Award for Best Speculative Fiction Magazine for the third year in a row. It's an honor to be recognized for the hard and very fun work we do around here. Thanks to all the listeners who nominated us, and thanks to the rest of you for just enjoying us. I think you're all going to really dig this week's story, too. We're looking at being separated from home this week. And as usual, we're starting things off with a hundred-word story. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words, not a word more or less, and it's the name of the game around here. This is an opportunity for you fans to be involved and get your work on the show. Anyone can write a story in only 100 words. Give it a shot. Send it in to submissions at drabblecast.org, or post in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the Drabble section. There we give you hints at the themes of upcoming episodes to guide and inspire you. This week's Drabble comes from longtime listener and microfiction whiz Christopher Monroe, and it's called You Can't Go Home Again. You can't go home again. Everyone uses the expression, but nobody remembers where it came from. It passes between generations with nary a thought to its origin. Nobody remembers those initial trading ships returning to port only to find no port left to return to. Where once had been a mighty island city-state was nothing but endless ocean. Nobody remembers their sorrow upon realizing their home was somehow gone from this earth, miles beneath the sea, or remembers their resolve not to let this break them as they set out to build new lives. Nobody remembers, or everyone does. After all, everyone uses their expression. And that leads us to this week's story, Roanoke, Nevada, by Edward J. Knight. Edward's been reading science fiction since he was very little, practicing it by building satellites for an aerospace contractor, and has now turned his hand to writing it. He enjoys tales that address moral struggles that hopefully few of us will have to endure. This story first appeared in an anthology called First Contact by a great online zine called Digital Science Fiction. Check them out at digitalsciencefiction.com. The story is read to you by Peter Piazza. So without further ado, we bring you Roanoke, Nevada by Edward J. Knight. As I stepped off the small plane, the wind shocked my skin. I'd known the desert could get cold in winter, but hadn't expected this. The night wind wasn't strong enough to howl, but it managed to suck the heat out of my exposed cheeks and neck. The military escort meeting me seemed unperturbed. They stood stock still, as if they could wait an eternity for me to descend the steps. I was half tempted to stall, just to see if they would. Instead, I took one long look around the bleak Nevada landscape. Given the isolation of this base, whatever had led them to summon me had to be serious, which meant I was likely to be here a long, long time. The demeanor of the men meeting me was as cold as the night. They didn't smile. They didn't ask for my name or identification. As soon as I was on the ground, a lieutenant scooped the bag out of my hands and a colonel told me to follow him. Those were the only words any of them spoke. Fortunately, it wasn't a long walk to shelter. One security checkpoint leaving the airfield, another entering the compound, and then a short walk to an underground bunker entrance. There, the guards gave me only a cursory examination before they had me enter an elaborate scanner, 
hold my arms away from my body, and turn slowly in a complete circle. At least they didn't make me remove my shoes, I mused. As we entered the elevator, I turned to the colonel. So, what do you do for fun around here? At first, I didn't think he'd heard me, but then after a pause, most of the personnel play video games in their spare time. Others go to the gym or the shooting range. What? No moonlit hikes in the desert? No dune buggy races across the sand? My little joke failed to get a rise out of him. He just stared straight ahead for a half dozen heartbeats. There's an observation deck for the astronomers, he said, his tone still flat beyond monotone. Sometimes people go up there if they want time outside. If all the people here were as droll as the colonel, it was going to be a long, long stay. The general, at least, appeared to have some personality. While his office was mostly the stereotypical military bland, a large gag photo of a green-skinned, bug-eyed alien holding up two fingers in a peace sign adorned one wall. In it, a younger version of the general stood next to the alien, also making a peace sign and grinning like a loon. When I was ushered in, the general smiled, apparently in relief. At least someone is glad to see me, I thought. He stood and offered his hand. Dr. Lowry, welcome. I'm glad you could join us. I suppressed a grimace. It's not like I had a choice. Happy to be of service. He introduced a man in a dirty white lab coat next to him. You may remember Dr. Britt. He says he met you at the Biological Warfare and Defense Conference. I looked at Britt. Young, gawky, and a bit gaunt. I didn't remember him. I met a great many people at the conference, I said. Ah, Britt said. We uh, just talked for a few minutes after your presentation. I nodded and turned back to the general. He gestured for me to be seated. When I had, he cleared his throat. We have a problem. I nodded. It wasn't hard to guess what type. You've had an outbreak. Correct. And it's unusual or you wouldn't have called me. Correct again. I leaned back in my chair. This was familiar turf. I'd already bailed out the military's germ warfare units more than once, even though I hadn't realized they had one in Nevada. So what did your bio guys cook up this time, I asked. We didn't cook up anything, Britt said. He looked hurt. It's the population that's the problem. I raised an eyebrow. It's the extraterrestrials, the general said, watching for my reaction. Our extraterrestrials are fallen ill. Really? I couldn't keep the disbelief out of my voice. My eyes wandered back to the picture on the general's wall. He noticed. That's an untouched photo, he said. The aliens are real. And they're here. I couldn't help but burst out laughing. The general had been pretty tolerant, I mused later, as Britt gave me a tour of the facility. Part of it was surely the fact that I was one of the few epidemiologists with a top clearance, but part of it also seemed to be that my reaction was expected. I had the strong sense that I wasn't the first one to laugh at the picture of the aliens. Because they were so... Hollywood... The dark green skin, big black eyes, bulbous heads, and spindly limbs were, were straight out of a Spielberg movie. They were unbelievable because they were exactly what we had always imagined. Which, Britt confirmed, was the point. We decided to go with the purloined letter approach, he'd said, although I was sure the we was honorific and not literal. We intentionally put out some pictures early on that anyone would interpret as obviously fake. That way, if any reports leaked out, no one would believe them. You manage that, I said. Britt just grinned in reply. But as he took me around, he told me a story that was even more astounding. The aliens had come from Eridani in a slow boat as potential colonists. Their closest biological Earth equivalents were amphibians, which meant they could hibernate in cold water for extended periods of time. 
It had been a small jump to develop a successful cryo-freeze technology. That had enabled them to make what had been a several hundred year journey at the fastest sublight speed they could manage. They made first contact with the Apollo 13 astronauts. Apparently the entire, we have a problem, had been a cover-up of the real problem, which was coming face-to-face with the alien's ship. Roswell, Britt told me, had indeed just been a weather balloon. The cover-up, including the full quarantine at the base, had continued ever since. I was too used to government paranoia to do more than shrug knowingly, particularly when that paranoia gave them an excuse to mine the newcomers for advanced technology. Communication had been difficult at first, as Eridanians only talked visually. Apparently they had firefly-like emitters in their fingertips that radiated in the near-infrared, which humans couldn't see. They talked through complex patterns of gestures and flickers. Fortunately, their vision did extend into the visible light spectrum, so rudimentary communication had been possible, until the Air Force engineers had developed better tools. Since then, the tools had been refined so just about any human could use them. Britt said he'd teach me the next day. He continued to explain a great deal of minutia about the base and the lab, but I was no longer listening. I was going to talk to aliens. I was actually going to talk to aliens. I had devoted my entire professional life to studying the strange, the weird, and the deadly, admittedly at the microbiological level, but I had never been as overwhelmed by the possibilities before. Who knew what I might learn? But of course, by the time we got to my bunk, my analytical side had kicked in. They've been asking the aliens questions for nearly 30 years. What makes you think you'll ask a new one? I might have slid into a small funk if Britt hadn't chosen that moment to clear his throat. So, he said, how do you want to proceed? I blinked. We're really at wit's end, he said. We don't know how they're getting infected, or if it's even an infection. That's just what their doctors called it, before they died. I gulped. They died? His eyes took on the seriousness of the men I'd met outside. Just as cold, but with Brit, I could see the fear lurking beneath. Their entire medical staff didn't survive the month, he said. They die fast, and every day we lose one or two more. I took a deep breath. Then let's get started on figuring out why. After I'd gotten a mug of coffee and something to eat, Britt and I settled into a small conference room. A couple of the staff scientists and techs joined us, at first trying to bring me up to speed on the intricacies of alien biology, but I waved them off. I'm an epidemiologist, I said. I'm not going to spot anything in their cells or whatever their equivalent is, that you guys haven't already looked for. One of the techs frowned. We were hoping, if you want someone to check your work, get some other microbiologists, I said with some annoyance. My goal is identifying the transmission vector. If we can stop the transmission, we can save some, even if we can't find a cure. If it's transmitted, Britt said. And if it's not, I said, we find the environmental factor. Something's killing them, because the probabilities don't favor natural causes. Not if this death rate is new, after them having been here for decades. The heads around the table nodded grimly. So when did it start? I asked. The first death was one of their agricultural engineers about three months ago, Britt said. He was found face down in one of the hydroponics rooms. We didn't examine him ourselves, the the Eridani doctors did. But then after the doctors died, we got white, that's what we call their leader, to transmit us the medical files. I'm still trying to understand everything in those files, muttered one of the scientists. Britt didn't bat an eye at the interruption. As far as we can tell, the Eridani were baffled themselves. When they told us about it, the doctors said that the engineer's body had uh, eaten itself but we suspect that's not an accurate translation. I managed to suppress a sour smile. Try explaining AIDS to African bushmen in their dialects sometime. He'll end up with something similar. 
That's actually what we think it is, one of the scientists said. Not AIDS itself, but some disease of their immune system. That explained the wide range of symptoms and actual causes of death. Oh, great, I muttered. Any consistent symptoms? Other than death, Britt said. Hard to say. There's a broad range. Any patterns at all? Britt shook his head. No, that's why I asked for you. If there's a pattern, we can't find it. It doesn't matter if they're young, old, male, female, where they work, or even if they've been in isolation. The only pattern is they're dying at a regular rate, and if it doesn't stop soon, there won't be any left, I finished. They solemnly nodded, almost in unison. Then I guess fun time is over, I said as I set my coffee down. Let's start building the parameter database and see what commonalities we can find. With a few quick sidebars for coordination, they dispersed to bring back files, paper, and laptops. The conference room would become our war room, and it looked like everyone would be deferring to me, even Dr. Britt. I couldn't help shaking my head as I thought about it. The aliens are here, and we're at war. Just not with them. But there's no rest for the wicked. I had work to do. I spent a few hours showing the team how to set up the database and run my custom software package. We also set up the tracking wall and news wall, as well as the assignment whiteboard. Dr. Britt wanted the team to review some of the case files with me, but I put him off. I knew that the best way to avoid fixating on a single hypothesis early on was to first populate as much of that database as possible. Confirmation bias could be nipped in the bud by cold, hard statistics. After that, I begged exhaustion and retreated to my bunk. But I couldn't sleep. Extraterrestrials! Here! I wasn't surprised that the government had kept them a secret. It was what governments did. It was their natural reflex. They'd quietly pry every bit of advanced knowledge they could out of the aliens until something forced their hand, and they had no choice but to go public. Then it would be done with the most exquisite spin possible. I could already see my role in that spin. Not by name, of course, but part of the meme. We had to make sure they couldn't infect us with some disease, like the one that almost killed them. I'd be one of those top scientists that had ensured our biological safety. I snorted. Mother Nature, and I was sure she was a mother on Eridani as much as on Earth was a capricious, relentless bitch. She was constantly coming up with plagues that laughed at attempts to contain them. Antibiotics? Meet resistant Staphylococcus. Vaccines? Meet the flu virus, annually changing. Quarantine? Almost impossible to enforce, even if the vector turned out to be something controllable, instead of fleas or airborne spores. At least quarantine has a chance here, I mused, where they're already contained. Checking the tightness of that containment would be part of our work during the next few days. We checked the air, water, and other pathways that could have introduced the disease, whatever it was, to the Eridani. I was confident it wasn't a perfect seal, although it didn't mean something had gotten in. Nor did it mean that nothing had gotten out. But if any humans had gotten sick, I was sure the general or Dr. Britt would have mentioned it. None have gotten sick. Yet. That thought chilled me. HIV had demonstrated how killers could have multi-year incubation periods. Nearly 30 years of secret confinement of the Eridani was looking smarter and smarter. But how long would it last? I was bleary-eyed and barely caffeine-functional when I met Britt and the team the next morning in the war room. Most of them looked similarly worse for wear. We discussed the database and some of the potential variables I thought we should track. Guessing the biological parameters was fairly straightforward. The big unknowns were usually environmental. It was almost impossible to track every nuance of diet or social contact. Still, we brainstormed wildly and added even the craziest ideas to the whiteboard, if not to the database itself. The real problem, I mused after a couple of hours, is that we don't know the incubation time. There's too much of a range for potential exposure. It's only a few days from first symptoms to death, generally, Britt said. True, but how long between infection and first symptoms? Don't know, 
It's too bad that the timeline from symptoms to death is so quick and consistent, I said. We could use some variability. Why is that? One of the techs asked. Because the progression of the disease is almost certainly not linear, I said. It'll be exponential or quadratic or something like that. If we had more variability in its progression, we might be able to back the function out through statistical means. What about the ones in cryo? One of the scientists, Dr. Johnson, if I remembered his name correctly, said. I looked at Britt for an explanation. They still have the cryo chambers they used to get here, he said. The first ones to fall sick, they popped into those until they ran out of chambers. I frowned. How could they run out? They reproduced fast, Britt said. There's five times as many of them now as made the trip. I gulped. Quintupled? In thirty years? The Eridani have the exact times when they were frozen, Johnson said. Maybe we could figure out how sick they were at the time. They, that'd give us some statistics on its progression. But do we know how close they were to dying? I asked. If we don't know exactly how far along they were, it, it doesn't tell us anything. Johnson shrugged. We might... The Eridani seemed to think they know how close they were when they were picking candidates for freezing. I turned to Britt. He slowly nodded as he stared into space. I think, I said, it's time for you to teach me how to use that communication equipment. His eyes met mine, and he nodded again. The communications room turned out to be more boring than I'd expected. Two computer consoles sat below a glass wall that looked into Eridani space, as Brit called their compound. we type our words, and the computers would translate them into a pattern of lights on the Eridani displays. Their responses would come back on our screens. Just like an online chat, Brit said, except a more limited vocabulary and no emoticons. I nodded. It made sense that emotional content would be completely lost in translation, I was more surprised about the vocabulary limits. Apparently, abstract concepts and their associated terms were still difficult to translate, even after decades of communication. Simple verbs, nouns, and scientific concepts were much easier. Still, before I hit send, the computer would highlight in red any words or expressions not in its dictionary, so I'd have the chance to rephrase things. Britt explained the icons on the desktop and a few other commands, He'd be at the terminal next to me if I needed help. I wasn't worried about the controls. My heart was beating too hard to really care about anything but what it would be like when the aliens entered the room. I finally had to force myself to sit back and relax. Then the far door in their side of the room opened. They were stunning. The two aliens appeared more fragile than unexpected. They stutter-walked across the room like punch-drunk sailors trying to avoid a faceplant. I couldn't avoid holding my breath until they sagged onto their stools opposite us. Then the one across from me held up his hand, fingers apart, and waved. My hand crept up, and I waved back. Britt started typing. The Eridani tilted his head toward his screen and then did something I couldn't quite see with his own hands. And so the conversation began. Britt introduced me as a specialist of disease transmission to the Eridani. The leader of the colony, called White by my team, sat to the right of Fire, the closest thing to a medtech the aliens had left. White said, typed, waved his fingers, that they'd had a good night because they'd only lost two more Eridani. Britt expressed shared negative value by humans, which White followed with, understood. Then we were off into technical topics. I was pleasantly surprised how quickly they picked up what we were suggesting. Fire confirmed that they could indeed track the progression of the disease quite well once someone was sick. There was a biological marker that translated as internal cell sores, which increased in a sick person until biological failure occurred. It wasn't the cause, though, as the internal cell sores were common to all Eridani and had been considered harmless for generations. They're like intestinal bacteria for us, Britt said, harmless as a rule, and unrelated to their immune system. We haven't been able to spot a causal relationship between them and the epidemic. They appear to just be a symptom. 
They're still a useful symptom, I said. I turned back to the console and explained the statistics I wanted to compute to the Eridani. The console translated the math surprisingly well. Of course, Britt had them repeat our request back to make sure they'd understood. At the end of it, White asked, Anything more? An amusing thought hit me and I quickly typed back, When does the cavalry arrive? The idiom flash read not in the database. So I rewrote it. When do more doctors arrive? My screen lit up. Twenty years, or never. I blinked and turned to Brit. This second colony ship is already on its way, he said. But when the disease struck, they sent a message telling it to divert to another star unless, unless they got a second message saying the disease had been overcome. You'll have to tell me more about that later, I said. Brit nodded and then told the aliens we were done. Again open mouth, I watched them skitter walk their way out of the room. We worked on the database some more the rest of the day, but it was routine and I didn't put too much thought into it. We were really just pushing bits around as we waited for the Eridani. When one of the techs yawned, I called a break and told everyone we'd pick up in the morning. I don't suppose there's a bar here, I said to Brit as the others filed out. He smiled. Actually, there is, but they're closed at this hour. But if you want one, I know where we can get a couple of beers and we can go up to the observation deck for a while. I nodded and went to grab my coat. It was freezing on the observation deck, but I didn't care. Britt and I sat with our backs against a railing and drank. We didn't talk for a long time, just staring at the night sky. So what's this with the next ship? I finally asked. He sighed. It's en route, but Earth isn't the only planet it can reach, so if there's a plague here, they'll save themselves and leave the ones here to die. That summarizes it pretty well. I took another swig of beer and contemplated the stars. I was sure Britt could point out Eridani if I asked, but I didn't feel much like asking. Seems like an awfully long way to come to die, I finally said. It's a risk, Britt said, but they think it was worth it. Why? Many reasons. At least that's what they've told us. Some are running away from bad situations. Some are seeking profits here. Others, he shrugged, they're as varied as our ancestors' reasons when we came here across the ocean. I shook my head. Not my ancestors. At least not all of them. I'm eighth-generation Algonquin through my father's side. You know what I mean, though. True. So here they are, the first Eridani colony. They're kind of Plymouth Rock and Jamestown rolled into one. Except Jamestown wasn't the first colony. Roanoke was. Wasn't that... Yeah, I said grimly. The colony that didn't survive. Britt bit his lip, then raised his beer in a toast. Here's to not becoming Roanoke, Nevada. I'll drink to that. Hell, I'll drink to anything right now. We clinked bottles and drank deep. Then we just sat quietly, each lost in our own thoughts. The next day we met with the Eridani again. My heart again skipped a beat when they entered the communication room. They were still magnificently beautiful, but the second time lacked the novel wonder of the time before. We skimmed through the greetings and got straight to the technical heart of the discussion. The Eridani had nailed the timeline. The internal cell sores increased exponentially over time, with a fit correlation of 86%. Fire estimated that initial infection occurred about one to three weeks before first symptoms appeared. He, she, I had never been told their gender, had even gone one step further and identified the likely first infection time for every sick Eridani, alive or dead. He'd transmit the file as soon as we wanted. I want it now, I typed. This is good work. Very fast. Fire signaled back. Slow, not choice. Fire infected. Britt sucked in his breath. We both stared at the aliens. Fire will go to cryo-freeze, White signaled. We wake if need more. Is that a good idea? I asked Britt. He slowly shook his head. 
But they have no choice, do they? Fire waved his fingers. The screen lit up. You save my children. My children's children. My children's children's children. All good then. I looked him in the eye as best I could and nodded. I could only hope he understood the implied promise. Back in our war room, a couple of the scientists crunched the new data from the Eridani and formatted it for our database. Johnson and Britt scribbled ideas on the whiteboard about the first case's possible exposures now that we knew when he'd been infected. I clutched my coffee and watched silently. I couldn't help thinking about what Fire had said. Four generations in thirty years, all alive. Of course it was possible that they'd flown with multiple generations all in cryo-freeze, but if their population was already five times the number of freezers, a whole lot of them had to have been born here. What was the exponential run out on that? I kicked some numbers around in my head. Standard doubling at 1% growth per year took 72 years, doubling a little over twice in 30 years. I paused. The growth wasn't spectacular numbers-wise, but it was still fast for living organisms more complex than bacteria, especially considering the older generations still seem to be alive. These are very strange creatures. My musings were interrupted by a loud, Ha! from one of the techs as he stared at his computer screen. It's in the food, he said. They're fucking food. We all clustered round and strained to look over his shoulder. See, he said, the first infections were the farmers and then some of the food service workers. We couldn't see this correlation with first symptoms, but infection dates did it. Britt pointed to the correlation coefficients. Those are really high. I nodded. Definitely not random. But it doesn't make sense, one of the scientists said. I turned to him. Why? Because not all of them get sick, he said. If it's their food, it should act like a poison, not a disease. And some of the ones who did get sick were eating ship's stores, Britt added. What? I said. Before the doctors died, two of them thought it might be the food. They switched to some old stored food they have, but still developed symptoms. They could have already been infected, I said, or the food could just be a non-causal cofactor. Their diet's certainly different, one of the scientists said. They don't have the biodiversity here that they were used to back at home. Maybe we can correlate what type of food, one of the techs said. I raised my hand to pause the nascent brainstorming. Let's be a little more organized about this, I said. Britt, you form a team to see if you can establish the type of food, food source, whether it's raw or processed, and so on. See what correlations you can find. Johnson and I will focus on vector analysis from the farmers and food service workers. Maybe it's not the food, but something they caught and passed on. Meanwhile, the bio boys can poke into how the food itself could be killing the Eridani. This isn't their planet. Maybe it mutated. Maybe it picked up a parasite, something. I paused and looked at the cluster around me. I could already see the mental gears whirring. We'll meet back here in eight hours and go over what each group's come up with, I said. The correlation's great, but correlations don't kill people. They just point the way to the real killer. The earlier euphoria was replaced with grim expressions all around. With a few head nods, we all dispersed into our ad hoc work teams. I headed for an open computer. Only part of me was happy about the breakthrough. Eight hours later, I was mentally exhausted. Johnson learned quickly and turned out to be very sharp, which made our work more of a brain hurricane than a brain storm. We flew through the math and the propagation maps, identifying anomalies and exceptions, and resolving over two-thirds of them. Johnson kept a list of dead ends as well, which was a godsend when my tired mind tried to retread old paths. The other teams looked similarly wiped out when we reconvened. I silently wondered how many had skipped eating or drinking, as we looked like we'd been through a minor war zone. A successful one, though, given the small smiles of satisfaction here and there. There's an infection correlation of 0.54 to mostly raw food diets, but only 0.22 when it's mostly a processed food diet, he said. The reason the farmers were hit first is they sometimes eat from the fields as they work. 
They have a higher raw food percentage than others. Britt paused, and his expression turned from triumphant to serious. Food type does not appear to matter, he said. There's a strong correlation with earth-grown food, but we can't explain the Eridani who died eating ship stores. The earth-grown correlation makes sense, one of the biologists said. We think the mechanism might be through their heavy metal absorption. They're not adapted for our high metal concentrations since their native soil doesn't have much for their plants to absorb. That'd also explain why processing the food reduces the death rate. It bleaches out the iron and other trace minerals. But it still doesn't explain why the doctors were among the first to get sick, Britt said. No, I said, but I have a hypothesis about that. What if the agent is not the minerals themselves, but something the minerals do to their natural bacteria, or whatever those internal cell sores are? Because Johnson and I are showing a weak, but statistically significant contact correlation. What? One of the techs asked. Contact between aliens, I said. The ones who were around the infected farmers got sick sooner. The correlation isn't strong, but it's there. So, Britt said, one of their natural and otherwise benign parasites mutates and discovers it likes iron or something. More iron means more parasite until there's enough bad parasite to kill the person. I nodded. It would explain why the doctors got sick, even if they didn't eat the food. They received enough parasites from their patients even without ingesting high amounts of the problem mineral. It can't be the internal cell sores, one of the biologists said. We've investigated those in depth and they really are harmless, like our stomach bacteria are. They don't kill the Eridani. But their population still explodes when they get sick, Johnson said, well above normal levels. A mischievous thought entered my head. Normal levels for whom? Would the internal cell sores consider their old population the normal level, or the new one? Well, Britt said, normally their immune systems keep the internal cells under control. He grinned as the realization hit him. Exactly, I said. And that immune system is either failing or busy fighting the real disease until the cell sores population is large enough to be a corollary symptom. That's why it's a marker. The room fell silent as that conclusion settled in. The moment was broken by one of the biologists. If it's heavy metals, we can do chromatography tests on blood and tissue samples. That'll narrow down the possible parasites. We can also tell them to stop eating raw food right away, Britt said. It won't stop the disease, but it could slow down the deaths. I nodded. It'll buy us time, which we desperately need. Johnson stifled a yawn, and I grimaced. Which we definitely need, because we can't work around the clock ourselves. Not if we want to avoid making dumb mistakes due to fatigue. Let's knock off and start fresh in the morning, before Johnson decides to curl up on the table for a nap. They grinned at my lame joke, but I couldn't return the smiles. Things just aren't that funny anymore, I thought. Of course, I myself couldn't sleep. After way too long staring at the ceiling, I slipped from my bed, raided Britt's beer stash, and headed for the observation deck. It wasn't as bitterly cold as before, mostly due to the lack of wind, but I still felt chilled as I leaned against the rail and stared up at the sky. We made good strides today, I mused, but something still feels wrong. It was like looking into a funhouse mirror as we tried to solve the problems. I could see them, but the distortions nagged at me, like I was missing something more important in the fog of exhaustion and haste. Trying to nail what was bothering me just made it more elusive. So I let my mind float. The stars, the desert, the night. All the memories and details of the last few days. An unmeasured eon later, Britt appeared with his own beer. He smiled when he saw me. Couldn't sleep either? he asked. I shook my head. He came over and leaned against the railing. We looked at the sky. After his third or fourth sip, Britt looked down and cleared his throat. They put fire into cryo-freeze tonight. Three more deaths today, too. That sucks. He nodded. It hurts every time I hear about more deaths. Yeah, but better them than us. 
We're lucky they didn't bring some disease that could kill humans. He shook his head. Maybe they did. You've heard about the frog die off? What? I felt the hair rise on the back of my neck. He sighed. Worldwide, frogs are dying. From a virus brought by the Eridani. We still have no idea how it got out of containment. Of course, people aren't contracting it, but since viruses mutate, who knows? My blood chilled, but I kept my tone as neutral as possible. No containment's perfect. Even if you block everything obvious, there's always someone who believes the quarantine doesn't apply to them. He nodded. There were a lot of problems at first before we built this base. They're trying to do better for the next one. What next one? He took a long drink from his bottle. For when the next ship gets here. I thought it wasn't coming. He shrugged. If we beat this, it will. Besides, it's not the only one headed this way. I couldn't keep the ice out of my voice. What? From what we can tell, there are nearly a dozen ships headed for Earth or for other planets they've found for possible colonization. My God. I took a calming breath. That's a lot of Eridani. Britt didn't reply. Mind blown, I just stared at the stars. We'd do the same, he said finally. If we could, we'd flood the stars. There would be thousands of volunteers too, maybe millions, even if we knew that some of us would die on foreign shores. Britt swallowed the last of his beer. I just wish it had been us among the stars. Instead of them, he said. He didn't say anything else, and finally headed inside in hopes of finding a bit more sleep. We met with White the next morning. As he scuttled into the room, I realized my wonder was truly gone. He waved and looked innocent, but all I could think about was frogs. Dead frogs. Millions of them. Britt told White what we discovered and requested more blood and tissue samples for our biologists to run tests on. He agreed, bobbing his head like an overanxious woodpecker or a politician trying to placate his big donors. If we find the cause, I typed, we still have to find a cure. Understood. It may take some time. We may not be able to save many. Save cryotechs, White replied. Must save. Why? Cannot auto-retrieve from cryo. Controls not work well now. Need techs. Understood. We will save them, Britt typed. Then he ended the interview, and we headed back to the war room. The team was showing glimmers of optimism. The biologists had some promising ideas, but I wasn't in the mood to hear them, even if I could have understood them. Instead, I told Britt to take charge, because my part was largely done. Britt organized the remaining research effort, confident of what they were looking for. I tried to follow along, but in the end just volunteered for data entry. They'd done it for me, so I could certainly do it for them. Besides, it was fairly mind-numbing. It took a week to isolate the disease agent, and it turned out we were right. It was the Eridani equivalent of a virus that had mutated and used iron as a reproduction catalyst. It was a long week, especially because I still couldn't sleep even though I was working more normal hours. Most nights found me up on the observation deck with a beer, staring at the stars. I did ask the general to let me go home since my work was done. He refused, saying I had a unique way of looking at things. He was sure my perspective would be valuable, so he wanted me around. I hung my head, too tired to even throw a sarcastic quip in his direction. Unfortunately, the general turned out to be right. I was idly making plots in the war room when one of the biologists let out a loud groan. What? Britt asked. It's in their brain cells, the biologist said, not just their blood. We can't screen it out. I turned and joined the conversation. You can't what? We were thinking that a blood filter might work, Britt said. Use the iron to separate healthy blood cells from infected ones. But we can't filter brain cells. Nor can we use some sort of chemo to target the infected cells. So you can't cure it, I said. Not easily, Johnson said, his face dour. 
Not without a lot more time. Which we don't have, I said, and the infection's too widespread to have much hope of containing it. We can slow it down by cutting off the iron, Britt said, but that's going to be hard once the remaining ship stores are consumed. It'll take a while to figure out how to get it out of their food completely. Again, I said, time we don't have. A vaccine will take time, too, one of the biologists said. Why, I challenged. This virus is like their internal cell source, right? Their immune system can handle it until it's overwhelmed. In fact, their immune system is actively fighting it, or the internal cell source wouldn't proliferate. That's just a theory, Johnson said. But it's the best we've got, I countered. Maybe if we give their immune system a head start with some sort of vaccine equivalent, while simultaneously cutting down the iron, their immune systems can win. Britt nodded. Maybe. We don't have time to do much else, I said. They're dying pretty fast. That's right, Britt said. It's better than nothing. And maybe we can save some of them. The room let out a collective sigh. Then the biologist turned and went to work, while I just stared blankly at my computer screen. Another long week later, we had our first vaccine attempt. We'd had to use a live but weakened virus, harvested from a dying Iridani. They tried it on a couple of volunteers, and it appeared to work, but getting the dosage right turned out to be tricky. We had to account for whether individuals were already infected and how infected they might be and we didn't have a reliable test for how much was in their systems before symptoms appeared. That brought me back into the heart of the problem. I turned my statistical software package to the task, and was able to provide a short table of recommended dosages based on how likely an Eridani was to be already infected. We'd still get it wrong some of the time, but the probability of survival would increase overall. That night, Britt joined me on the observation deck but with champagne instead of beer. Where'd you get this? I asked. He grinned. The general. He offered it when I told him you'd solve the problem of how to save them. I'm no savior, I said. Not by a long shot. Britt shrugged and poured the champagne. We couldn't have done it without you. I didn't have any retort. I took the proffered glass and drank. Once again, we turned and looked at the stars. After a long pause, I broke the silence. Have you ever wondered how we look to the Eridani? You mean our appearance? I shook my head. No. I mean, do they see us as their saviors? Or are we just primitive savages that got lucky when, when they needed us? They don't see us as primitive. There are some areas we're actually more advanced in than they are. Mostly in metallurgy. I don't know exactly how they see us, but not as savages. That's vaguely reassuring. They're wonderful, he said, his voice full of awe. I can't tell you how privileged I feel to be working here with them. They're, they're practically fairies. Like Shakespeare said, it's a brave new world that has such people in it. His eyes drifted off into some pleasant memory. I sip silently. It looks like it's time to be brave. Bravery turned out to be easy. The next morning, I simply handed the biologists a revised dosage table. Are you sure these are correct? Johnson asked. I'm sure, I said. And don't forget, we need to get all the cryotechs. In fact, you should probably start with them. Johnson nodded. Right. We'll get them vaccinated today. That'll ensure the colony's survival. No, I thought. It will ensure Earth's survival. But my poker face must have held because Johnson didn't ask anything else. He rounded up the vaccination team while I turned back to my computer and quietly deleted every file and every program that could be used to calculate the correct dosages needed to save the Eridani. That night, I once again headed up to the observation deck, except this time, instead of looking at the stars, I stared east. Had my Native American ancestors done the same thing? What really had caused the destruction of that first Roanoke colony? The lost Virginia colony hadn't stalled the European invasion for long, 
and maybe I hadn't stopped the Eridani plague either, but hopefully I'd bought us time, more time. That's what stopping plagues is all about. That's why my ruse was necessary. I stared at the barren landscape. The cold pierced me through to the bone. I let the wind brush over my face one last time, then went below for some sleep. was our story. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, remember the Drabblecast comes to you each week only by the support of listeners such as yourself. Consider donating to help us pay authors for their work. You'll find support options off our website at drabblecast.org. Closing out here with our 100-character story winner this week. Each week, of course, we pick a 100-character twabble from the TwitFix section of our discussion forums and tweet it out on our Twitter feed, at the Drabblecast, before airing it on the show. This week's winner is forum member Bell, with this one here. She'll ruin your faith with her casual lies, the phone sang. I never programmed that as her ringtone. Smartphone, eh? I'm a sucker for some Billy Joel. Try writing a 100-character story yourself. Post in our forums at forums.drabblecast.org. Or just follow us on Twitter to get the winners early each week with some other goodies. We're at the Drabblecast. So that's our show, folks. Remember, Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change or sell it. But feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up our show. Blog about us. Tell a friend. Spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Spencer Bingham. Spencer's a 2D animator living in Jose, California. He's a recent graduate of the Academy of Art in San Francisco, presently embroiled in a bout of job hunting. His work can be found at binghamanimation.blogspot.com. So, our program is brought to you by myself, Nikki Drayden, managing editor, our submissions editor, Nathan Lee, editor-at-large, Matthew Bay, our art director, Bo Kyer, and with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, David Steffen, Jake Webb, and Jonathan McNeil. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman, reminding you, it's a brave new world that has such people in it. <laughs> <laughs>